0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. We're talking about law for Virginia law enforcement officers. What do you need to know to better serve your community, to strengthen your community, uh, to get better at what you do? Uh, We're talking about constitutional law, statutory law, new cases. And today we're gonna talk about a new case regarding uh, qualified immunity for law enforcement officers. It's a really interesting case from the Fourth Circuit decided just this week and i think it's a great example of uh, the limits of qualified immunity but also why it's important for law enforcement officers and uh, how it protects them and how it doesn't protect them as well and also i want to give you an update on the proposals for police liability in the house and the senate the house virginia house voted uh, at the end of january on delegate bourne's proposal to uh, and essentially eliminate qualified immunity and then the uh, virginia senate voted uh, this week on uh, Senator Surabelle's proposal to expand police liability under Virginia law. So we'll talk about all that stuff today. Um, but again, this is obviously, a, you know, something that's constantly changing. You always want to keep your eyes on the law. But, uh, but it was a pretty significant week, both for cases and also for statutes. So you're probably really interested in the statutes. So I'll start with that, and then we'll talk about the case. Um, to start with, Delegate Bourne, and I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, Delegate Bourne had a proposal that was a pretty sweeping proposal that would have essentially uh, eliminated any kind of immunity for law enforcement officers in Virginia. Not just qualified immunity, but sovereign immunity. And not just sovereign immunity, but also eliminated the limit on punitive damages. In Virginia, there's a limit on punitive damages for anybody, for, you know, bus drivers or cabinet secretaries or grocery store or operators or whatever. You can only get up to about a quarter million dollars in punitive damages. Um, and doctors, you can't get any punitive damages, really. It's very difficult to get. Almost, I think it's almost impossible to get against doctors. But anyway... Um, but uh, this would have eliminated the, the limit on punitive damages just for uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, his bill would have done that. It also would have uh, eliminated the protections that exist under the law, like Good Samaritan. So, you know, if you stop and help somebody on the side of the road, if, you know, they're having a heart attack or you give first aid, you know, normally for an EMS worker or just an average citizen, there's something called the Good Samaritan Protection uh, but this would have eliminated that for law enforcement officers if you're enfor- enforcing a state of emergency order from the governor again anybody gets uh, immunity for that uh, unless they you know willfully or intentionally act uh, to hurt somebody but um, th- this would have eliminated that for law enforcement officers so you would have been held liable if the governor issued an unconstitutional order the only people who could be punished for that for enforcing that would be law enforcement no one else Um, So that bill, however, got voted down in a subcommittee in the House, in the Virginia House, uh, back on January 29th. Uh, They voted against it 6-2. It was actually a pretty significant vote, Uh, but they referred it to the Crime Commission. They asked for the Crime Commission to study it and come back. You know, they've tried to vote on this. They tried to pass it, got pretty close to passing in the special session. It came back again this session, and the House is pretty determined that they're going to pass a bill on this, But they also understand that they don't really understand this area of law, and so they sent it to the Crime Commission, which is an interesting decision because the Crime Commission is basically focused on crime and the Virginia Code 18.2. But Delegate Bourne's bill has nothing to do with Virginia Code 18.2, and it has very little to do with crime. So it's interesting to see. You know, the Crime Commission can accept things. The Crime Commission cannot accept things. They can say we're not going to study something even though we were asked to. Um, and you know that the chair of the House Courts Committee is also the chair of the Crime Commission, so I mean, obviously, she has a lot of power to get things heard by the Crime Commission. But the Crime Commission could just say, you know, this is not what we do, um, and we're not gonna we're not gonna issue a report on this, which puts us puts it back in the same position we were in before, and we'll probably see another bill from Delegate Bourne or somebody on this issue. Uh, and the Senate also struggled with their bill. You know, their bill by Senator Serravalle would have essentially imposed civil liability for violating those new use of force uh, statutes that got passed in the fall. So you may remember that the Senate the, excuse me, the general Assembly and the governor signed is now law. Um, you can't shoot at a moving vehicle, which of course you couldn't do either you know under pre-existing law uh, unless there was a danger of death or serious bodily injury. Um, you couldn't use a kinetic impact weapon except to prevent bodily injury. Um, which is kind of basically what the law is anyway, I think. But um, but they also, you know, they had this this rule about touching the neck. You can't touch someone's neck in any way to move them or get them to comply or anything like that, even if you're just lightly touching it, even if your hand, you know, just sort of slips onto their neck or, you know, not, not pressing it, no pressure, just, you know, like, you know, sir, don't bump your head, you know, as you get into the car, you touch their neck, you violated their, um, the, you know, violated the statute. The way the statute's written, it was originally going to have a criminal punishment that was removed. So now it's just an administrative punishment potentially for your violation. Senator Suravell's bill would have also said there's a civil law uh, penalty under Virginia law. You could be sued for this, uh, for these actions. Now, keep in mind, Virginia law has already said you can't do these things. So, um, you know you clearly can't do it. It clearly isn't a lawful use of force um, if you were to shoot at a moving vehicle. Although, again, you couldn't do that under the law before it was passed. Um, but anyway, this would have clearly put a cause of action in the, in the, in the code. And again, the Senate uh, voted it down uh, in a relatively close vote, 9 to 5, but essentially saying, we just we want to study this issue. We, just like the House, we want to understand the issue. They recognize they can't send it to the Crime Commission because it's not a criminal issue. So they, in their session, really talked about, we want to try to understand this uh, and have somebody come back and, you know, some people who really understand this, uh, uh, you know, and act on it. Because I think they still feel like they really want to pass a piece of legislation regarding police liability. So, and again, it comes from this uh, popular skepticism about qualified immunity and about police liability. And a lot of this comes from just, you know, people not understanding it. There was a great case this week from the Fourth Circuit that really focuses on us on the what qualified immunity is and what qualified immunity isn't. Now, when I say it's a great case, it's a good example of how courts apply qual- qualified immunity. Um, and, and for that purposes, I think it's a really good case. So I want to take a minute and talk about it today. And the case is uh, Wingate versus Fulford. It's a case out of the Fourth Circuit, and it was just decided uh, this week by the 4th Circuit on February 4th. It's a case out of Virginia. And it's a case where a sheriff's deputy is driving down the road, he's patrolling the area, and he sees a disabled car. He pulls up behind the car, hoping to help the motorist. But ultimately, the uh, when, he, when he walks up to the vehicle, he can see that the vehicle's hood is popped and the lights are on. And at this point, it's worth kind of going back and giving you some background on what the officer is thinking as he's walking up to this vehicle. This is an area that the officer knows, uh, because he's patrolling it, as an area where there's been a number of of thefts in the last couple of years. Um, He will later talk about catalytic converter thefts from vehicles. Um, and there's a, a car lot written right nearby that certainly would be a prime area to commit thefts of, for example, catalytic converters. Um, when this case ultimately goes to court, though, we'll talk about in a second, how substantial the thefts were, how identifiable the thefts were, how much they could, they could identify, you know, it was this kind of theft, this kind of theft. The officer knows that there's been a bunch of thefts in the area in the last couple of years. He can also observe that the individual is wearing all black and the individual, dis- disabled motorist, states that his vehicle is disabled. Basically, it's you know he's got he's having engine trouble, but the engine is running. So the officer asks the uh, disabled motorist for identification. Now, at this point, it's worth knowing that in this jurisdiction, they have a failure to ID ordinance. Um, the ordinance states that it is, and this is a local ordinance that it's a crime to refuse an officer's request for identification if the surrounding circumstances are such as to indicate to a reasonable man that public safety requires such identification. And some jurisdictions have these fair-to-ID ordinances. They're unusual in Virginia. Some have them. Most don't. um, But there's, and we're going to see in a moment, there's a lot of debate about these ordinances and, you know, whether they're constitutional and what circumstances they are constitutional and so on. So the officer walks up. Now, this guy is standing here over his vehicle. He's looking at his vehicle with um, a—this motorist is looking at a vehicle with a flashlight. This deputy walks up, and he says, hey, you know, what's going on? The guy says, oh, I'm having engine trouble. Um, And uh, they have a brief conversation, and the deputy says, well, show me some ID. And the guy says, well, why am I showing you ID? Am I in trouble? And the deputy says, you you know, in this county, you got to show ID. Give me some ID. The guy refuses. At that point, the deputy puts him in handcuffs. There starts to be a struggle. Another officer is shown up at the scene. The guy run, starts running away. They get into a, a struggle over it. They ultimately uh, get him in handcuffs, get him in custody. They charge him with uh, failure to ID uh, and impeding and resisting arrest and a bunch of other charges. And ultimately, the case goes to court. The Cummels attorney drops the charges against the driver and the driver sues the law enforcement officers. So, We end up in in, in a case where the question is, is the deputy lawfully permitted to stop this individual? Is it a lawful seizure under the Fourth Amendment, right? Because as far as what level of police citizen encounter we're at, we're not at consent. We're not at arrest yet. What are we at? We're at uh, a Terry stop. And then is the ultimate arrest for failure to ID also a lawful arrest? So is the initial detention of the individual lawful and is the arrest for failure to ID lawful? And these are the two questions that the Fourth Circuit examines in this case. And you'll see in a second that the Fourth Circuit looks at them very differently. Um, And so let's start with the question of the initial detention. Was it lawful to detain this person, right? Well, what are the reasons why this individual is detained? Um, He's parked. uh, It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and he's near a, a lot. There's been a bunch of larcenies in the area. He's parked near this lot. Um, and it's just two o'clock in the morning. He's not parked, but obviously he's got a car. His car is broke down, right? So if he's that that in itself, being in an area at two o'clock in the morning, isn't alone gonna be enough for a stop. It gives you some suspicion. Um, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, and who's out at two in the morning? It's just generally speaking, cops and bad guys, right? But you know, it, it's not really enough for a stop. But we, but the, the officer will also say that it was a dimly lit parking lot of a closed and empty business. Um, There were lots of other places that a person could stop, but this person stopped here, and that seemed to be unusual. But again, here the court says, well, if the vehicle is disabled, you're not choosing where you stop, so that's not going to help very much. Um, What about the thefts in the area, right? This is a pretty big issue. And here, the fact that you're dealing with a, quote-unquote, high crime area, the Fourth Circuit has been recently very, very skeptical of officers citing the high crime area, as a basis for a stop. You might remember we had we did a whole podcast about U.S. versus Curry, right? And the concern of the court was essentially then anybody who lived in that area, anybody who traveled through that area, you know, would be subjected to stops just because they were in that area uh, if the rule was somebody in a high crime area can be stopped, you know, pretty much under any circumstances, right? Um, and here, the officers citing an area as, uh, the area the officer cites as where there have been many larcenies is a huge area. It's a, it's about an, um, you know, it's about, you know, I don't know, it's several miles around. When the court dials down to this particular area, this particular neighborhood, though, in the course of the civil discovery process, what they learn is <clears throat> that the lot itself, where this person had parked, had had, had eight larcenies over a six year period. And the court said, well, eight larcenies over a six-year period is really not that many. And when you get to about uh, a 1,000 feet around, sort of a 1,000 feet area around, there had been 18 larcenies over a six-year period. And again, the court says, that's just not, you know, you're talking about 18 larcenies over a six-year period in a 1,000-foot radius, that's not really that many. And... A, and a contrast we'll talk about in a second but you know if we have an area where they've definitely been targeted you know this row recently in the last few weeks with a string of larcenies um, you know i did a case years ago there i think there was you know hundreds of auto larcenies from particular neighborhoods um, there i think the facts would be different but here we just didn't have enough of that um, the officer pointed to the fact that the when he pulled up the individual got out of the car immediately as the deputy arrived and the deputy was concerned about that but here again, this is not a normal traffic stop. This is a person who needs help, who's disabled, is on the side of the road. And so here the court says, well, that's not really inconsistent with somebody who already needs help. He was wearing all black clothing. But again, the court says, ah, you know, all black clothing is not really helping us in this circumstance. And then the last factor, which we'll talk about is, the court is very is very skeptical of the uh, of the concern. Well, the guy says his vehicle is disabled, and yet his engine was on. And the court says, well, you know that doesn't. He's not saying the engine the car doesn't work. The car is completely broken down. He's just saying he's having engine trouble. And the fact that the engine is running uh, itself in the eyes of the court wasn't enough to detain this individual to think that he was engaged in criminal activity. So in short, the court looks at the situation, they say, this is just not enough to believe that this motorist on the side of the road is engaged in some kind of criminal activity. And therefore, uh, it's not enough to believe that the officer uh, can detain the person. And the court contrasts this, you know, obviously you can can combine different factors. You don't have to see somebody engaged in crime in order to detain them. They contrast this with a case called uh, Perkins which was uh, another case uh, from the Fourth Circuit. It's the United States versus Perkins. is a case from back in 2004, um, where, again, you have a high crime area uh, where there's a lot of drugs, a lot of children. Uh, But this officer had himself conducted four or five investigations on this street and knew the particular address in the Perkins case, which was 2740 Knox Avenue, as a place where drugs were commonly sold. He had personally arrested the uh, residents of one of the units in that house on several occasions. Um, An unnamed anonymous source had reported observing people with rifles in that uh, area, in, that, excuse, in, front of, in the front yard of that house. Um, according to the anonymous source, men had reportedly arrived in a red car with a silver or white stripe. A resident in the area who was known to law enforcement, they knew what her name was, she said that um, she saw drug activity all the time um she had provided the resident had provided useful information to law enforcement before that had led to um successful arrest and investigations um after the anonymous tip to the police they are watching the house and they do see two white males arrive in a red car with a silver or white stripe parked to another car next to another car right there at 2740 Knox Avenue and when the officers are observing it they can see that one person in the car is a well-known drug purchaser who lives in the area and then when officers show up that car drives away so in the eyes of the court that's enough for reasonable suspicion stop and notice in that case the car that gets stopped it doesn't get engaged in any illegal activity. They don't that, that car does nothing wrong. And the only indication that the car or the people in the, you know in that red car have done anything wrong comes from an anonymous tip, right? But all the corroborating information about the officer's experience in the area and specific experience with this residence and specific experience with this particular neighborhood and the information from the known uh, witness and so on, all that together, gave us some specific articulable facts that were unique to this car that said the people in in this car are engaging in some kind of criminal activity what's the criminal activity we're not exactly sure but we know it involves guns and drugs and that's bad and we're going to stop this vehicle so in Perkins they contrast they say Perkins that was enough for a reasonable suspicion stop even though the person wasn't observed be engaging in any crime but here in this case again we have somebody who stopped the side of the road who says they're disabled other vehicles disabled. They're wearing all black. It's an area where there've been crimes, but it's not uh, the identified activity is not you know necessarily consistent with the person being there on the side of the road, um, and it's not really specific or unique to that area. So the court says essentially that the stop was unlawful. It didn't have a lawful basis under the Fourth Amendment, and the court further says that qualified immunity does not protect that stop because any reasonable officer would know that uh, there was not a lawful basis for that stop, right? Um, Now, the court here essentially says uh, you get qualified immunity. You don't get qualified immunity because the criminal activity has to arise from conduct that's more suggestive of criminal involvement than this person's was, and any reasonable officer would have known that. But then you have this other issue, right? So the stop is unlawful. But what about the arrest, the arrest for the failure to ID ordinance? Well, the court agrees here that the arrest is also unlawful because obviously, you know, you, um, you know, it states, the ordinance states that it's a crime for any person at a public place or a place open to the public to refuse to identify themselves at the request of a law enforcement officer if the surrounding circumstances are such as to indicate to a reasonable man that the public safety requires such investigation. Now there have been cases before uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases, including Texas versus Brown, uh, which is which in which deal with failure to ID ordinances. Culler uh, versus Cullender versus Lawson, I think, is another one. <clears throat> and in in Texas, the Texas versus Brown case, the person refused to identify themselves. And again, Mister Brown was walking in a high crime area. He looked suspicious. Um, they arrested him. They charged him. And um, the US Supreme Court said, you know, you still <laughs> you the 4th Amendment still applies. Just because somebody has to identify themselves in a situation under this ordinance where public safety requires it doesn't mean that you can just stop and demand ID from anybody. The 4th Amendment still requires at least reasonable articulable suspicion to stop somebody. And um in the, in the Hibble case, which is another US Supreme Court case says, then you 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 cannot um you can compel somebody under a statute to identify themselves, but again, they have to be lawfully stopped in a Terry stop under under state law. So a state could enact a law that says during a Terry stop, you must produce ID. Virginia doesn't have an, a statute like that. So we don't have a statute that requires somebody on pain of incarceration to produce ID in a Terry stop um, in Hibble that they did. Um, but here the court says these officers are operating under a statute that says that they you know that they can demand ID and a failure to produce ID is a criminal offense. So the court has to decide here the deputy doesn't have reasonable suspicion to stop the person. The person fails to produce identification and the deputy and a fellow officer who shows up as backup officer make an arrest. And here the court says, well, What would a reasonable officer think under the circumstances when the ordinance clearly states that they're authorized to arrest somebody if they believe that public safety demands production of the ID, right? Well, in their view, the way the Stafford County, in this case, wrote its ordinance, a reasonable officer could infer, according to the way that the Stafford County ordinance is written, that... um, that, it, that they can demand ID from somebody if they believe public safety requires it, and the person just has to produce identification. Now, the court is very clear that that's not the law. In other words, Stafford County's ordinance shouldn't be read that way. Under Texas versus Brown, under Hibble, there has to be a lawful Fourth Amendment stop first before, te- before Stafford County's ordinance can be applied. But how would an officer understand that distinction? In the eyes of the Fourth Circuit, an officer gets this statute, gets this directive from Stafford County that says, this is what our law is here in our jurisdiction. Our law says this, go forth and enforce this law. Well, they, you know, any reasonable officer would read this and think, okay, so if I think public safety demands it, I can demand ID from somebody. All right, well, you know, sir, disabled motor's on the side of the road. uh, I think public safety demands it, provide me ID. Person doesn't provide ID. Okay, so then you're under arrest. And that's what happened in this case. The court says in this case, you know, that the officers are applying the clear law as it's written, as they're asked to apply by their jurisdiction. How are they supposed to understand that, in fact, in the eyes of a court, this law is going to be found to be unconstitutional, as applied uh, in this particular case? There's no way for them to understand that. And so the court on the false arrest claim finds that the officers are uh, protected by Sovereign immunity, because this ordinance as written doesn't do what the Constitution required it to do, which was uh, to predicate enforcement of it on some kind of reasonable position of criminal activity. So the officers do not get qualified immunity protection, the original officer doesn't get qualified immunity protection for that uh, traffic stop or for that subject stop on the street but they do get immunity protection for applying an ordinance as written in the code. Now, the other question is what happens going forward, right? So now we've identified for future purposes, this ordinance, even though it just says an officer can demand ID when they believe public safety demands it and the person has to produce ID, but any officer now in that jurisdiction, and I think any officer in Virginia, should know that if they're applying their local failure to ID ordinance, they can only apply that in a situation where there's already been a lawful stop under the fourth amendment Uh, in other words you have to have reasonable articulable suspicion to detain somebody first and then if you've already lawfully detained somebody under the fourth amendment if you already have reasonable articulable suspicion for that stop during that detention of course the fourth amendment permits you to ask that person for id And then if you have a local ordinance that says that it's a criminal offense to refuse ID, well, then that ordinance would apply. But you couldn't walk up to somebody on the street and just say, hey, give me ID. And if you don't have reasonable suspicion, you're still detaining them and saying, hey, give me ID. And if that person fails to identify themselves, then they're under arrest and they get prosecuted. That's not lawful uh, under Texas versus Brown. It's not lawful under Hibble. And it's not lawful under this case. So, um... So that's the distinction here. And so, but it's important to recognize, so these officers would get uh, qualified immunity protection in this case, and they do, the court says they do, but a future officer wouldn't get qualified immunity protection in this case because the court's making very clear here for all future officers, we've set the rule now, uh, whatever your local ordinance says, you still need to look to the constitution first. And these local ordinances um, uh, are modified by what we're saying right now by this rule. So, I think it's a good example, this case here, uh, of how the courts apply the doctrine of qualified immunity, and you know we've seen this this year in other cases as well. Um, we've seen this, for example, the Fourth Circuit had a case in early January called Dean versus Jones. That was an Eighth Amendment case. It was a case involving an inmate, um, and remember, the Eighth Amendment use of four standards are different than the Fourth Amendment use of standards. We spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about use of force for law enforcement we don't talk a lot about use use of force for jails and prisons and so on because i don't that's not really what i do but um but that standard is an eighth amendment standard but in in dean versus jones the inmate alleges and i'm not saying this is what happened but the inmate claims um that after he just out and out headbutted an officer he was just being escorted he's just walking in the hallway and he just head-butts an officer. Um, that essentially the officers beat the heck out of him, um, pepper sprayed him, knocked him on the ground. Um, then he gets up and headbutts an officer again, which he admits to doing. Um, and then, again, a second officer, they push him to the ground, and they beat him and punch him while he's on the ground. The Eighth Amendment says, you know, you can use force for legitimate penological justification, but you can't use force just to punish somebody. In other words, you can't just say, all right, well, you headbutt an officer, so we're just going to beat the heck out of you. Um, that's not permitted. You couldn't just, you know, tie him to a post and beat him. Uh, that's not permitted under the Eighth Amendment. He alleges that's what happens. And in Dean versus Jones, the court says, <clears throat> you know, you don't get qualified immunity for that. Uh, it's clearly established under Eighth Amendment law that inmates have a right to be free from pain that is inflicted maliciously and with the intent to cause harm. Uh, they don't have a right to be free from pain if it's if it's used in a good faith effort to protect officer safety and prison order. So if you're fighting with the officers, uh, then yeah, you're going to get, you know, it's going to be a painful experience, right? But if you headbutt an officer under the Eighth Amendment, uh, and then you completely give up and you comply and you just sit there and you don't do anything, they can't walk up and use force against you and beat you basically to punish you. So that's clearly established. And here, again, the court denies uh, qualified immunity in that case as well. Um, there is uh, discussion about whether the Supreme Court again will take up qualified immunity uh, this year. They took up a case in November, an Eighth Amendment case, and basically ruled the same way that the Fourth Circuit did in that case. That I just mentioned, you know, again, it's clearly established that you can't use force in these ways. Um, and there is, you know, so it's possible they could move it. And again, remember, uh, that the composition of Congress has changed, the composition of the Senate has the U.S. Senate has changed, and the U.S. Congress and Senate could change qualified immunity. Uh, there's a bill, I think I mentioned it in a podcast back in the summer, um, that would end qualified immunity protections for law enforcement officers. That has like a hundred co-sponsors in the House, and I think passed the House, and is just you know, it still hasn't been taken up in the Senate. So you know we'll see what happens with that in the um, in the U.S. Congress. But that's where we are uh, as far as the law in Virginia today in February of 2021. Uh, That's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, You can, of course, listen to us on SoundCloud. If you want to be on another app, let me know. I'm more than happy to be on another app um, and try to get you on there if you like that app better. But that's all from me for today. Uh, That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.